Think of someone trying to make sense of the world in the 20 days following the attack of Hamas in Israel. Imagine seeing in your screens the massacre of 1,400 people, most of them civilians, the kidnapping of women, of children, of elder people. And imagine seeing the perpetrators pr proudly showing the world what they did. And then in the following days, you see people who call themselves the peace movement taking to the streets. And of course, you expect that they take the streets to protest in solidarity to the victim, in solidarity to Israel. And then you realize that they're actually marching, waving Palestinian flags. They're actually repeating talking points of Hamas. And they are engaging in what is actually victim blaming, if there ever was one. But then there's even bigger surprises waiting for you. Because you check who these people are, and you see that most of them are well-educated and come from some of the highest esteem of the highest esteem universities of the West. And actually, you see that even their professors join their anti-Israeli protests. So today, we'll try to answer the question, what can bring someone to such harshness and moral degeneracy? That's how I would uh, describe this. So this is another episode in our mini-series, trying to set intellectual light in the conflict in the Middle East. And we are talking about the protests. Are they anti-war or actually pro-Hamas protests? So, Elana, I know this is a topic that actually uh, surprised you when you saw it or shocked you. So why do you want to talk about the protests in the West? The first reason is the scale and how widespread they were. So there's debate about how many people showed up in London, for example, but the, however many people did show up, it was a significant number of people. And the same is true of Paris, Stockholm. You see uh, protests throughout Europe. And then also in North America, I saw video of protests in New York City, in Toronto, in different parts of the, of the country. So the, there's widespread reaction to this. And that in itself is significant. And then the second thing is that what people were saying and what is it that they were protesting for? And my answer to that is I don't think they're protesting for anything. I think what they're advocating is support for the, the Palestinian cause with Hamas as its leader. And in effect, I regard many of those people as either unwittingly or knowingly in support of Hamas and uh, having an ir either irresponsible or, or um, callous disregard for what Hamas actually stands for. So if you can stand in the street, whether it's on campus and, or in the streets, and we should differentiate between those events, the campus protests and the street events, but if you're in the streets and you're telling people the Palestine has to be free from the river to the sea, and you don't know what that means, and you don't know that that's a code word or a dog whistle for Hamas, and not quite a dog whistle, it's an open statement that Israel has no legitimacy to be on any piece of land. If that's what you're saying after 1,400 people have been massacred and 200 have been taken hostages and rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel, as has happened numerous times, what you're saying is you're standing with the people who are carrying out the atrocities. And you have to think hard about what it is that you're doing. The other reason I say they're not standing for anything is that there's no positive here. It's a it's complete fantasy 
that if Hamas wins, if Hamas liquidates Israel and, and creates something from the river to the sea, there will be anything like a society that's better. It wouldn't be. We know what Hamas society looks like in Gaza. It's a religious dictatorship. And if you think that that's superior to a rights-respecting society, like such as we see in Israel with all of its problems, it's basically on the side of freedom. If you're against that and you're in favor of Hamas, you're not for anything. You're for destruction. So to me, part of what was so scary about these protests, what's so dispiriting and so shocking is the the open nihilism that these protests represent. And, and that, I think, is it's we're just at the beginning of this conflict where, as you said, we're roughly 20 days in, and this is what people think they need to go into the streets and chant about. We should talk more about what the differences are between the protests, but I think that's the important thing. There's real nihilism, and it's it's self-conscious, self-assertive, and confident in, this, in a certain way, nihilism, and that's part of what's scary, too. First thought by Onkar. Yes, I think the essence of what we're seeing is nihilism, and it's what's shocking people. I haven't been quite as shocked, particularly of what is coming from universities, because I've spent a fair amount of time on campuses, and I've seen some of this, and I've seen the anti-Israeli attitude on campus. But it is surprising how brazen it is, and that they... I think all these groups have not expected pushback. So they, they are getting some pushback on different campuses and from donors, but I think they did not expect it. They thought we, we can say this, this is what we hear in a lot of our classrooms and we're, it's gonna go unchallenged. And I think the reason it hasn't gone unchallenged is people are sensing, they might not be able to fully articulate it, but they're sensing this is, nihilistic. This is at root something bad. There's no legitimacy at all. And you couldn't even rationalize this. And to get the nihilism is to get their goal is destruction. What they want to see is Israel and the Jews destroyed, driven out of their lands. That's part of what the slogan that Alan was talking about. That's what the slogan means. This is what Hamas's goal is. It's stated from inception. And nobody gives a thought to, well, what will what will replace them? Israel is a, I mean, and in the Middle East, it's the only free nation. What will replace it? And what's I think shocking people is they don't care. They don't there's not some argument about, oh, Hamas will set up this great. A Palestinian state and so on, and you're going to have undreamt of prosperity. And you think Israel now as a startup nation is prosperous. Wait till you see what is built when they're gone. So there's nothing like that. All we want is them gone. Um, and then if we um, kill each other, if we set up groups that terrorize everybody and, and we set up religious dictatorships, yeah, who cares? As long as we've got rid of Israel and the Jews. And nihilism means you're after destruction as your primary and overriding goal. And you don't care what happens afterwards. And what th that you didn't see on the campuses, any criticism of Hamas in the, so it wasn't, oh, well, we think Israel does some bad things, but obviously Hamas is a hundred times or a thousand times worse. 
That's not what was said. And that tells you something very deep and very disturbing about the mentality here. And I think this is what has thrown people into um, kind of questioning, like I support the university and I donate to this, and they seem either comfortable or oblivious to the nihilism that these students are exhibiting. So, Wonkar, you mentioned that they don't care what will happen to the people on the ground. It's not the first time in history that we see the so-called peace movement or the anti-war movement not caring what will happen to the actual people they supposedly care about. Another example is the anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. So this was not a legitimate criticism. What is the United States doing there? There is no threat coming from Vietnam. We should we shouldn't even be there. It was an active support, active support of North Vietnam. The number one chant was Ho Chi Minh, uh, uh, the National Liberation Front is going to win. And then once the United States left Vietnam and the whole of the Vietnam was actually in the control of a dictatorship, I don't think anyone would uh, uh, would uh, doubt that, or at least anyone, any reasonable person would doubt that, then suddenly they don't care that all these million people would live under a brutal dictatorship. But let me play devil's advocate here. Someone could claim, look, the point in this protest is, let's make sure that the day after, the reaction to this atrocity is not worse than the atrocity itself. And the mind here goes to the 2001-2003 peace movement, which was with some uh, few voice against the war in Afghanistan, but then many, many millions of people around the world were protesting the war in Iraq. Actually, the 15th of February 2003, the International Day of Protest Against the War, is the biggest protest in the history of humanity in the history of humanity in terms of its international uh, spread. So the idea is, look, they would say back then the peace movement was right. We should never have gone to, the, to, to Iraq and we made things worse in Iraq, they say. So today they say once more, we are giving you a warning, give peace a chance because war is never the solution and war might do things even worse. So what would be your reply to this, uh, to this narrative? I think the first thing to say is that that's not how to think about issues from a moral perspective. The, the idea that peace is never, that, that war is never the answer is wrong. War is sometimes the necessary answer to aggression and you need to, to take all necessary steps to eliminate the threat if you've been attacked. So I don't think that is useful as a way to think about these things. And the retrospective perspective, the retrospective argument about Iraq, we were against the Iraq war as well. We thought that the actual focus should have been on Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. And it didn't mean that you had to go to war against Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, but you, you might have needed to go to war against Iran. But we certainly didn't think Iraq was the right war. When you look back at the Iraq war protests, I'm not comfortable saying that they had the right views on the issue. I think that their reasons for not wanting to go to Iraq were a mixture of really bad things and some questions that people legitimately had. Like, do we know what's happening there? Is there really weapons of mass destruction and so forth? But I don't think the the answer here is, well, they, they got Iraq right. So isn't this an argument for not using military force? I think the, the essential issue is, have you been attacked? Are you the innocent party and the, do you have a right to self-defense? And if you do, you need to use it. 
That's the issue. And we could talk about their, the Vietnam protest, but again, I think Ayn Rand was against the Vietnam for reasons very different from the, the anti-Vietnam war protesters as well. And her view was it was a, not a self-interested war, but that was not, so she didn't go in the streets and, and cheer the enemy, which is what those people did. And they did it on campuses as well. So you have to think really deeply about what is this issue from a moral perspective? Who's in the right? How can you know that? What is the evidence for that? And what does it mean to be in the right? What ideas should you be advocating for? So, and, and all of that is pushed aside when we we put, we try to deal with this issue in terms of categories that are not useful. Anti-war is not useful as a category because are you against World War II? Are you against defeating the Nazis? How could you be against that? Is it, are you against self-assertion? Are you against innocent victims defending themselves? So I think that it's important to bring more moral principles into these issues as opposed to the way a lot of the narrative is around these uh, protests, both Iraq, Vietnam, and today. So I want to, oh God, yes. Yeah, I want to say something about, so because you put it as give peace a chance. And so one could think there's some kind of positive goal here. If it if you're just anti-war, as Alon was saying, it any cause that is just anti-something should be suspect because it, okay, you're going to tear down something. What are you going to actually build? And is it going to be better? And if you don't have a position and a view and a detailed view about that, you have to worry that you just have a nihilistic movement that just wants to destroy. And as Alon was saying, it's not as though as every war is bad. Some wars are necessary. You don't want to enter into war, but some like the American Revolution, it's a, it's a real positive in the world that that happened. So, but so the, the, the idea is, oh, but they're pro-peace. Most peace protesters, at least since Vietnam, I do not view as on the side of peace for a very simple reason. If you're not anti-dictatorship, and pro-freedom, pro a constitutional republic modeled on the United States of America. If that's not what you think, that's what brings freedom, the pursuit of happiness and prosperity to a nation, then you're on the side of war. A dictatorship is at war, literally at war with its population. It subjugates them. It's basically like if you look at how Hamas gained power, they fight an actual civil war against political opponents in their region, and then they wield total power. And if you don't have a word of condemnation against that, and if, if you think you're on the side of peace, and if you don't work actively and ongoingly against dictatorships, you are not on the side of peace. And so these people who protest and go to the Iraq war, who want to hand, oh, we're not, have proper permission from the United Nations, the United Nations is an organization that coddles dictatorships. The United Nations, whatever they say, is a pro-war organization. They give shelter and moral sanction to places like Russia, who's fighting a war of aggression against Ukraine at this time. And it's to, to think of, well, when the United Nations officials get on and, oh, we're about peace and we just want a humanitarian ceasefire, you, by working at the UN, are pro-war. You help and enable Russia. You help and enable China. And so, so this is part of what it means. If you don't want to have any foot in nihilism, you have to have a positive vision 
of what should be achieved. And if you think your vision is, oh, it's Hamas, or like we don't care about that, and it's just Arabs killing Arabs and so on, you're, you're pro-war and your collectivism is leading people to die. Right. So viewing these uh, protests, I was thinking, how can someone become so heartless, so morally ruthless to see these horrendous images we've seen and then the next day take to take the streets, not in solidarity to the victims, but uh, to the opponents. This requires almost, I would say, training. This requires a process where the way you are either taught to view the world, but you have also free will, the way you are trained and accept the training in terms of how you view the world, it requires a lot of effort to become so morally bankrupt with such a broken moral compass. So my question is, what has been happening in the culture or in the education system or in the universities? What is the process that leads someone to be that morally completely directionless? I mean, unfortunately, I think it's a lot of things that have happened, but take two aspects of this. Part of what collectivism is about is denying the reality and the moral significance of an individual. And all you see is groups and so on. And that, just by that fact, it's a dehumanizing ideology because only individuals exist. And what you should see when you look around the world is various individuals, and you should be evaluating them as individuals. And you should care about the ones who actually want to build something in their lives. And part of that will be that they want to seek countries, nations, governments that make it possible for them to build things in their lives. And so part of what is so vicious about these um, the protests on campus that are anti-Israel and don't have a word to say um, negative about Hamas, it's not just, though the primary is that, well, you're helping wipe out the achievement that is Israel, but you're also helping wipe out the individuals in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, who want a better life, who want to build something, and who know Hamas is an opponent of that, or the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. They're opponents of freedom, of building, of thinking, of creating something better. And collectivism teaches you, you don't see those individuals. You just see the Palestinian cause. Everybody's the same. There's some alleged injustice that's been committed to them. And now you're going to hold on to that for decades and decades and decades and decades and never build anything. And if, if you wiped away the collectivism and said, yeah, but look at the individuals and what they actually think, what they actually believe. Don't you see some who are good here and some who are bad? And don't you want to be on the side of the good ones and opponents of the bad ones? They don't, they're taught not to look at the world like that. And that, I mean, it's part of the tribalism. And tribalism is a dehumanizing um, ideology or viewpoint because it takes away any perspective on the individual. So a lot of what's been happening at that. the universities then. 
Yeah, I just want to add one thing to what Ankar was saying, which is to put this on a timeline. So what we're seeing on college campuses, that kind of collectivized thinking, that's one important aspect. It's not new. It's been there for for generations and it's it's the effects of philosophic ideas in academia trickling down. So people talk about how culture is upstream from politics. Yes, but that's not even the beginning of what it means to understand what thing, what's happening. Philosophy is upstream of everything. And what we're seeing in academia and the students are the products of this. You said it takes training, it does. And it isn't the, just the training of the students, it's the professors who were taught these ideas and who, who whose faculty taught them. It's been happening for many, many years and we're seeing the, the poisoned fruit of that now. Uh, and that to me, this underlines the importance of one of Ayn Rand's identifications, which is philosophic ideas are fundamental and inescapable. If you understand society, if you understand individuals, you need to understand the role of ideas, philosophic ideas, and not pretend like they're not there and not pretend that they're irrelevant, which is often the sort of the cynicism in our culture, which you talked about at the beginning. Part of that cynicism is an indifference to and a contempt for fundamental ideas. And if you have that perspective, your hope you really have no hope of understanding what's happening because the the phenomenon that we're seeing on campuses and in the streets in europe and north america that is philosophy playing out those are irrational ideas corrupting people's thinking warping their moral sense of how to deal with and understand atrocities like what hamas committed on october 7th and the whole conflict which is very complicated and difficult to understand you can't begin to do that if your beginning premise just take the one that Ankar mentioned if your beginning premise is collectivism you will not be able to make sense of it and what it will lead you to is to stand in the street and ultimately call for the destruction of value because it's a value for the good because it's the good that's what we're seeing playing out now. So, except so from, I, uh, yeah. Well, I just want to add, so I said there are two things. One is that we, at a minimum that you have to understand what's happened on college campuses and what they're teaching. One is the collectivism, but the collectivism has been around for quite a while. It's, um, it's worse now in many ways than before. It's more, kind of deterministic uh, and tribal. So it, it's, it's a sort of a descent, but it's it, the collectivism has been longstanding. What's new in the last 50 years as an ideological doctrine, it again has precursors. So new is, is a charitable uh, uh, description of it, but it's on academia, they view it as new which is egalitarianism. Egalitarianism comes after World War II and egalitarianism is nihilism. This was Ayn Rand's view of egalitarianism. And I think she's right about that. What egalitarianism is about, is about tearing down achievement. It's to say, nobody earned anything. Don't you dare think you've built something. You didn't build that. It's from some amorphous collective that this is all deterministic you don't think of yourself as building things. And then the kind of the moral ideal is equality, but you can't make people rise who don't want to rise, but to achieve equality, then how do you achieve it? You can cut down 
the people who have built something, who have earned something, who have achieved something. And that's what really animates egalitarianism. And that's nihilism. It's your whole primary orientation is to tear down achievement. And this has gained academic respectability and currency. Like it's all over academia, the egalitarian perspective in various ways. And that's what has, that's the open embrace of nihilism. And now what people are seeing is the consequence of this having been taught for 50 years and they're shocked by it. But if you knew, this is part of why I said the guy wasn't shocked by it's still disturbing, but I wasn't shocked or surprised by what you're once seen on campus. Cause I know these doctrines have been taught for decades and decades now. Ideas have consequences. So the last thing I want to address is that these disturbing uh, images we've seen in the, in the protest, people tearing down posters uh, from with the missing child and uh, singing from the river to the sea. So there has been an important intellectual backlash to these protests. But part of this backlash includes some uh, suggestions that I think I'm not sure how I feel about them. One says something like, uh, you, we should expel people who are Hamas supporters. But then the question is, what does it really mean to be Hamas supporter? So uh, how, what if this, uh, this, this disgust that many good people feel against the protesters leads to further erosion of free speech in Western societies? For example, we hear calls for uh, banning the public display of the Palestinian uh, flag and things like that. So, Elan, is there a danger that we are going to find ourselves with less freedom of speech based on uh, the moral outrage that these protests have uh, woken up in, in so many people? I think there is that danger. That there's always a danger because most people today don't understand freedom of speech. They don't understand what it encompasses. And in reaction to things that are truly horrifying and truly despicable, I can see them pushing for restrictions which are inappropriate. I think the, there are difficulties in the context that we're, we're in now because I think there's a good claim to be made that if the government of the United Kingdom or the US government puts Hamas on an official terrorism list, and if that list has any meaning, then it's right to say you can't support Hamas, you can't raise money for them, you can't operate on their behalf, and you can't speak on their behalf because they're seen as an enemy force. But the asterisk here is, do those lists even mean anything? And I think the answer is, I don't think they do because we put people on those lists and we take them off like they're like it's a birthday party invitation list. It doesn't have moral significance. And I wish it did because then you could identify those who shouldn't be permitted to speak because they're acting in in support of enemy forces as you would say in world war ii if you had people in the united states raising money for the nazis that would be a real problem i don't think you would be able to defend that on free speech grounds but i don't think we have that kind of clarity around hamas in particular and other organizations in general so i think that's part of what would make it a greater risk to freedom of speech Onkar. What freedom of speech really requires is that the people say there's a responsibility involved. Yes, part of the responsibility involved, it, there's, if you think of the First Amendment um, in the United States, it's freedom of speech, 
freedom of assembly, freedom of association is thought of as together, and they should be thought of as together. So the, the issue here is not, oh, we want the government to expel these people. It's much more, you have individual agency and whatever the details, the general um, atmosphere that's happened on like across campuses of, we don't wanna deal with these people. That is a proper response, particularly if you think it's not just some student who signed up um, because, oh, this is the latest protest and I support every protest and so on, but really is pro-Hamas, anti-Israel. The You should have the freedom to not deal with these people. There's law firms saying, no, oh, like we had these students coming and we don't want them anymore. That's a rational response. If it's like you're, it's a real evaluation of this is someone committed to this ideology, you should shun these people. And if we had a real, truly free immigration system, it wouldn't be the government bringing in people, putting them up in housing, giving them subsidies and so on. It would be people coming to work, to, to, to get study at a university. It would be perfectly appropriate for universities to say, yeah, we've been giving you scholarships and funding and so on. We're taking this away. We don't want to be giving scholarships to people who are actually voicing these kinds of ideas. The problem is they learn these ideas in the university. So the universities aren't going to do that. But these would be like private citizens have a lot of agency in regard to this. And that's part of what freedom means, that there's a responsibility to exercise your freedom and to think about who am I supporting? What am I doing that is either on the side of the good or on the side of the bad. And if I find them doing things that I think are wrong, yeah, like that, that there's donors saying, maybe I should stop supporting the universities. That again, I think is, yeah, definitely think about that. I think many of the ways that the donors support universities, when they say, like, I value freedom and so on. Yeah, you don't scrutinize nearly enough where your money goes, to whom it goes, what ideas it's helping propagate. And all this is, if we, you live in a free country, that's all the freedom you have, you enjoy, and you should exercise it. Thank you both. So this is this episode was part of our series on setting light to some difficult questions regarding the whole context of the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, if you found it useful, you can check on the right on YouTube. There's more episodes in this playlist, and if you found value in them, share the word and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Recently, we passed 100,000 subscribers, so a big thank you to all of you. Thank you, Onkar. Thank you, Lan. All the best. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.